Thanks for joining us and welcome to Search for Truth, your Bible teaching program with Brian Johnston. In this series, Brian's answering listeners' questions. There's no booklet to accompany the series, uh, so up to the beginning of March, God willing, Brian will be uh, responding to a new question each week, which you might recognise as the one you asked. So if you do, please tell us if you did or didn't find Brian's answer as a, a help. Uh, questions such as, can we really be sure of salvation? And what is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? And is there a Christian way to find a marriage partner? As these, as well as others, will be covered in the coming weeks. But let's go now to our question for today. One of our listeners asks you, Brian, is there any such place as purgatory? Uh, tell us, please. Right, John. It's from the Manchester area of the United Kingdom that this question comes, which asks, essentially, if there's a place or condition of temporary punishment for those who have not been fully forgiven of all their sins. In other words, is there a place that a person's soul goes to after death where further cleansing may be obtained by some means or another? Sometimes this view arises from a misunderstanding of Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 12. Accordingly, let's read those words in their complete original context, which is the only sure way to read out the meaning that's there and not read in another of our own thinking. Matthew 12 then, verse 22. Then a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute was brought to Jesus, and he healed him so that the mute man spoke and saw. All the crowds were amazed and were saying, This man cannot be the son of David, can he? But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, This man casts out demons only by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. And knowing their thoughts, Jesus said to them, Any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and any city or house divided against itself will not stand. If Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? If I by Beelzebub cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? For this reason they will be your judges." But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can anyone enter the strong man's house and carry off his property unless he first binds the strong man, and then he will plunder his house? He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people, but blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven." Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. Jesus said that this blasphemy against the Spirit, of which the Jewish leaders then were guilty, would not be forgiven in this age or in the age to come. That was verse 32. Certain religious organisations have seized upon this statement about no forgiveness in the age to come and gone on to suggest that Jesus had in mind a situation in which certain sins will be remitted after death, but not this one particular sin. The argument is that Jesus rules out forgiveness in the afterlife in the case of this sin but that surely leaves the door open for the forgiveness of other, less serious sins at some, perhaps, temporary phase of the afterlife. In other words, an idea has formed in the minds of many 
that there exists a temporary state in which the souls of the dead are given a second chance to be forgiven for the sins which they'd committed in their previous earthly life. However, this idea finds no justification in this statement made by Christ, not here and not in any other biblical passage. One Bible scholar states that Jesus' use of the phrase under discussion meant simply, absolutely never. Another, agreeing, said, in passing, it should be pointed out that these words, by no stretch of the imagination, imply that for certain sins there will be forgiveness in the life hereafter. They do not in any sense whatever support the doctrine of purgatory. The expression simply means that the indicated sin will never be forgiven. When there's a concern to understand a particular Bible text, whose meaning is not quite clear to us as yet, it's always sound counsel to refer to other verses which deal with the same topic in question. We should always use Bible passages which are clear as to their meaning to enlighten us on associated ones which are not so clear or which seem capable of being understood in more than one sense. To give confidence that we've understood Jesus' words correctly in Matthew chapter 12, we can turn to the writer of Hebrews, who succinctly wrote, It is appointed for men to die once, and after this the judgment. Hebrews 9 verse 27. That's clear then. There's no second chance. What's more, if any should try to insist that there's some kind of opportunity after death when we can, by our own suffering, complete the atonement required for our sins, this is so contrary to the Bible that it scarcely merits attention. But perhaps, for the sake of some, we should bear with it and point out the extreme error in this viewpoint. It's this. To say we must also suffer for our sins is to say that Jesus' suffering was insufficient. To say that we must atone for our sins by some subsequent painful cleansing process after we die is to deny the all-sufficiency of the atoning sacrifice of Jesus. And verses like Hebrews 10 and verse 10 speaks about the once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus that makes us holy. The idea that we have to suffer for our sins after death is contrary to everything the Bible says about salvation and is a very serious insult to the cross-work of our Saviour. That error of imagining some kind of second chance holding place for the soul is based on a misunderstanding of the nature of Christ's sacrifice, failing to understand that Jesus' once-for-all sacrifice was absolutely and perfectly sufficient, failing to recognise that Jesus' sacrificial payment has no need of any additional contribution, but that Jesus' death was sufficient to pay the penalty for all of our sins. Jesus, who was God incarnate, paid an infinite price for our sin. Jesus died for our sins. Jesus is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. To limit Jesus' sacrifice in any way is an attack on the person and work of Jesus Christ. If we must in any sense pay for or atone for our sins, that would imply or insinuate that Jesus' death was not a perfect, complete and sufficient sacrifice. And that is totally wrong. We need to affirm that Jesus died to pay the full and total penalty for all of our sins. Isaiah 53 and verse 5 declares, But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. 
Jesus suffered for our sins so that we could be delivered from suffering. But the Bible itself, in the words of the Apostle Peter, talks of those who distort the Scriptures to their own destruction. The way some treat 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 15 is surely an example of this. That verse says, If it is burned up, he will suffer loss. He himself will be saved, but only as one escaping through the flames. It's this talk of escaping through the flames, when ripped out of its context and then totally misapplied, which has given some what they think might serve as a defence of the idea which we are refuting today. The passage is actually, in its context, using an illustration of things going through fire as a description of believers' works being judged. If our works are of good quality, comparable to gold, silver, costly stones, then they'll pass through the fire unharmed, and we'll be rewarded for them. But if our works are of poor quality, comparable to wood, hay and straw, they, being combustible, will be consumed by the fire, and there will be no reward for us. The passage doesn't say that believers pass through the fire, but rather that a believer's works pass through the fire. And it refers to the believer escaping through the flames, not being cleansed by the flames. When properly understood, that verse is correctly applied to the judgment seat of Christ, before which all born-again believers of this church age will one day stand, not to be judged as sinners, nor as sons, but as servants. In other words, it's an assessment tribunal to evaluate the extent of reward for Christian service rendered. If we've backslidden and have no worthy efforts to show, that's when all our works are burned. But the believer himself or herself still has the gift of salvation, which is eternally secure, not being a wage, nor a prize, nor any kind of award, but all by God's grace, a gift received through faith. May I also say that for believers, after death our experience is shown to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Because of the perfection, completion and sufficiency of Jesus' sacrifice, we are immediately in the Lord's presence after death, fully cleansed, free from sin, glorified, perfected and ultimately sanctified and conscious of blessedness. Judging by the fact that text says it is very far better to be there. And that's Philippians 1 and verse 23. By contrast, as we touched upon earlier, Jesus in Luke 16, spoke of the rich unbeliever who had neither believed the Bible prophets nor attempted to act on God's word during his lifetime, for example, in helping the poor. His soul, when he died, went to Hades, same as Sheol. The souls of unbelievers still go there, as they are not covered by Paul's assurance to believers that we've just mentioned in Philippians 1 verse 23. As the rich man in Luke chapter 16 was told, there's no chance of any improvement from Hades due to the great unbridgeable chasm separating that place from the situation of blessedness, then known as Abraham's bosom. Well, I hope we've settled this very definitely in the mind of our listener from Manchester, and indeed in all of our minds. If not, do write in again, please.
so if our question is listening now, please let us know if Brian's talk's been helpful or not. Um, for some listeners, and you may be one, these talks may raise even more questions. If this applies for you or you've any comments, we'd love to hear from you. Now, here's our postal and our email address. Search for Truth, Church of God, Downing Drive, Leicester, LE5, 6LN, UK. And here's our email address. It's sft at churchesofgod.info. Now, although there's no booklet for this series on listeners' questions, you can still access the many booklets and broadcasts for subjects and studies we've previously presented here at SFT. So you still have the opportunity to enjoy these at your leisure. Now, each week I remind you of different ways to obtain them. And one of the ways you can listen again is by audio podcast versions of many past programmes. You go to www.searchfortruth.podbean.com and you can browse the list of previous talks, which you'll see has been sorted into categories to help you find what you're looking for. So thanks for being with us today. That's all we have for now. And we appreciate your interest in these programmes. If you're a regular listener, I hope you're enjoying the series. And next week, Brian tackles the question, why was salvation such a long time in coming? So if you want to know more, then please join us again. And until then, very best wishes from Brian, David, our singers and me, John. Goodbye, and may God richly bless you.